Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 83. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 4 through 7 in the second book of Kings and follow with a consideration of Elisha and how he reached the legendary status that he so richly deserves. If you're just joining the program, Elisha is now the one prophet to rule them all. His master Eliyahu went up to heaven in a fiery chariot, leaving him with his mantle and his powers. And Elisha is going to use them in this episode in a variety of situations. At the beginning of chapter 4, we find Elisha doing his thing. He even has his own protege, Gehazi, and a widow of one of the roving acolytes. Remember them? Those B'nei Nevi'im, Those minions of the prophets? <laughs> seem to be everywhere these days. This widow inherited her husband's messed up financial portfolio because apparently the dead minion sold his sons into indentured servitude. What? Yep, that was a thing back then. And and so Elisha saves the day with a handy miracle, a seemingly bottomless cruise of oil which he instructs the widow to pour out in various empty vessels and sell for money. The next miracle involves a rich, childless woman in the town of Shunem who hosts Elisha and Gehazi so graciously and frequently that she sets aside a special room for them in the attic for their exclusive use. And when Elisha asks Gehazi how he might repay this kind host, Gehazi says, well, she has an old husband and she's childless. Maybe she wants a kid. Uh, and this being the Tanakh, Elisha summons the woman and tells her, by this time next year, you will have a child. To which she responds... <laughs> You serious? Apparently he is. And within a year when Alicia returns, she's pregnant. Talk about a gift that just keeps on giving. The boy grows into a strapping lad, but then one day he suddenly collapses and dies, and the Shunammite woman is devastated. She tracks down Alicia and begs for intercession. Alicia sends his protege Gehazi with his staff to lay across the lad's body. But when that doesn't do the trick, Alicia takes a page from his old master's playbook. Quote, and he climbed up and lay over the child and put his mouth over his mouth and his eyes over his eyes and his palms over his palms and stretched out over him and the child's body grew warm. And he went back and walked into the house this way and that. And he climbed up and stretched out over him and the lad sneezed full seven times and the lad opened his eyes. <laughs> The next batch of miracles are food-related. Alicia cures a poisoned pot. Yay! And he feeds a hundred men with twenty loaves of bread and some first fruits. Yay! Then in chapter 5, his miracles are more medicinal in nature. It seems that Naaman, the Aramean king's general and chief of staff, has leprosy, and no Aramean can cure it. But Naaman's wife has a servant girl, an Israelite, captured in one of Aram's many raids into Israelite territory, who says that Elisha is the man to see. So Naaman goes to the king. The king says, I have a great idea. Why don't you go and see the king of Israel, and I'll give you a letter and some money and some clothing and all that, and I'll arrange for you to get cured by Elisha. But when the king of Israel sees the letter, he freaks out. He is convinced the Aramean king's impossible request is just going to be used as a grounds for another attack. And when Elisha refuses to actually meet with Naaman, the king of Israel is beside himself. 
And when Elisha tells Naaman to go dunk into the River Jordan seven times, well, shall we say Naaman is not amused. Considering who was doing the asking and the considerable gift that came along with the request, there was, shall we say, some expectation that at least Elisha would come out and lay his hands on, on the patient and recite some mumbo-jumbo and, you know, cure him properly. But instead, he tells Naaman to jump in the river. Well, cooler heads prevail, and Naaman does as he's told, and... Naaman is cured. And when Naaman offers to pay Elisha, Elisha refuses. Naaman offers to cover the cost of Elisha's near offerings for life. Nope, Elisha is not interested. But Gehazi is interested. And he finds an excuse to double back and see Naaman. And he comes up with a story about meeting two of the minions and needing some silver and clothing for them, which Naaman is only too happy to provide. Gehazi returns to Elisha's side, but not before socking away the cash and clothing. But Elisha isn't fooled. Where were you, he asks. Nowhere, says Gehazi, to which Elisha replies, Come on, don't bullshit me. And Gehazi is smitten with Naaman's leprosy. And well, bye Felicia. Chapter 6 is chock full of more miracles. Elisha levitates an expensive axe head that one of the minions lost in the Jordan River. And as the king of Israel expected or feared, the Arameans set out to wage war against Israel, but Elisha uses his prophetic powers or perhaps stingray technology to divine the military plans of the Arameans. So the Arameans try to kidnap Elisha, but he strikes them down with blindness. Yay! And when the king of Israel wants to slaughter the helpless Arameans, Elisha says no, feed and water them instead, which makes a huge impression on the king of Aram and, quote, the raiding parties of Aram no longer came into the land of Israel. But that goodwill only lasts, like, for one verse. As verse 24 recounts that the king of Aram lays siege to Samaria, the capital of Israel. The situation is so dire that the people resort to cannibalism. And the king, devastated by these accounts, or crazed from hunger or both, blames Elisha for the disaster and orders some men to go kill him. But as with the Aramean assassins, Elisha handles the matter with a miracle. Well, more like a prophecy, promising that food will be available in abundance in Samaria the following day. When the hand of the king doubts this report, Elisha adds, Oh, and you won't eat any of it because you'll be dead. Damn! The next day, four lepers discover the Aramean camp abandoned because during the night the Arameans heard sounds of chariots and horses and assumed that the Israelites had hired the Hittites and Egyptians and they fled. But when the report gets back to the king, he thinks it's a trap. And only when he sends out some men to check does he confirm that in fact the lepers' report is true, the Arameans are gone. And the siege is over. And when the king's hand opens the gate to announce the end of the siege and to let the people access the Aramean camp, the hungry people are so hungry, they stampede and plunder the camp and trample the hand of the king in the process. Yay! Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. If the last episode was a sitcom, then this episode, deploying pretty much the same cast of characters, kind of segues into one of those more like premium cable hour-long dramas with the occasional comedic moment, where the gritty anti-hero stands at the center, 
grimacing his way through each emotional and practical challenge with stoic masculine aplomb and a dollop of haplessness. Kind of like a cross between Better Call Saul and the Bob Newhart show. Except I'm unsure as to whether Alicia is the anti-hero like Jimmy McGill or the lone voice of reason in a world of insane goofballs like Bob Hartley or Dick Loudon. But if you note the structure of the vignettes in this episode, the highly personal, intimate ones, as well as the sweeping political intrigue ones in the later chapters, you might see how, in fact, these tales all kind of follow the same folkloristic structure, employing the same legendary motifs. And when I say legendary, I mean referring to legends as opposed to... Ted, my boy, it's gonna be legend... Wait for it. Dairy! Legendary! In fact, one could say that the vignettes in chapter 4 are at the same time reminiscent of the lore and legend surrounding Eliyahu, and reminiscent of another lore-laden and legendary figure. I am speaking of Jesus. You can insert the Better Call Paul joke here. Chapter 4 has four miracle stories. In each case, Elisha is solicited for help. And in all the instances, there is this ahistorical flavor. It's a story told in a time out of time. Consider first the minion widow who's fallen on hard times. As with the defrauded elderly in season two of Better Call Saul, Elisha responds in an earnest and resolute manner, kind of like Jimmy McGill. He, he steps in to help the helpless with a miracle of the seemingly never-ending, never-emptying crews of oil, but he instructs her to pour out the oil into other vessels at home in secret. There's an element of shadiness here. Jesus, too, heals discreetly and secretly, as he did for Jairus when he raised his daughter from the dead in Luke chapter 8, but I am getting ahead of myself. That's Elisha's next miracle, which Eliyahu did, too. The whole interaction with the wealthy Shunammite woman is also odd from the get-go. The way he speaks to her, it's like he's talking to a servant instead of his gracious host. Call this Shunammite, he tells his aide Gehazi. Doesn't he know her name? He stays at her house on the reg. He even has a special room set aside, and it's furnished. The least he could do is remember her name. And then when she comes, Elisha doesn't even speak to her directly. He tells Gehazi, quote, Say to her, pray, look, you have gone to all this bother for us. What can be done for you? Shall a word be said for you to the king or to the commander of the army? And when the woman says she doesn't need anything or anything like that, Gehazi points out that the Shunammite is childless. Wouldn't Elisha have noticed that on his own? And so the miracle here is actually twofold. First, the Shunammite woman conceives a child. But in the attempt to make her life better, Elisha embroils her in a personal tragedy that I guess he feels personally responsible for and strives to extricate her from. Which he does, with a second miracle, but barely. The laying of the staff on the dead kid trick didn't work, so he has to come on his own and, like his master Eliyahu, lay on top of the boy and breathe his prophetic power into him, which works. Miracle 3 involves the hungry minions in Gilgal, where he is the level-headed one when the folks around him are losing theirs. <laughs> and bam, another miracle. He cures the pot and feeds the hungry. Yay! But here's the thing. Elisha deals with a symptom using his powers, but leaves the disease in place. Though these minions will eat today, the famine remains. Why didn't Elisha do anything about that? 
And in fact, miracle number four is an extension of the third. The famine still rages across Israel, and to really drive home the legendary nature of this interaction, this story is relayed with practically no specific information. We know where it happens, Baal Shalisha, near Jericho, but beyond that, it could have happened wherever and with whomever. There is a man, he has 20 loaves of barley bread and first fruits, and he presents them to Elisha. Why? Did Elisha ask for them? Shouldn't first fruits go to the high priest? And who is Elisha addressing when he says, quote, give it to the people that they may eat? And where did the people come from? And are they minions? Apparently there are a hundred of them. And apparently when Gehazi sets down the food before them, a quantity that is clearly not enough to feed them all, quote, they ate and left over. We are definitely in the realm of folktale now. All we need here is an, and they lived happily ever after to end this story. But we find ourselves instead with another miracle story, another legend, this one a bit more historically grounded. It names people and places, well, not really. But rather than dwell on the historicity, this tale has a specific purpose. And it's not like the previous four tales, which were clearly trotted out to demonstrate how Elisha is really Eliyahu's heir and a powerful man of God in his own right. He can feed the hungry, he can solve problems, he can even raise the dead. This legend has a clear lesson. God is awesome. Elisha says it, and Naaman, the idolater, even he says it. And because God is awesome and miracles come from God, the man of God cannot profit from them, despite Naaman's offers and insistence, except when Gehazi screws everything up with his avarice and ends up leprous and out of a job. And I did mention that this story sounds a bit more historically grounded than the other ones, but if you look closely, you'll see that besides Elisha, Gehazi, and Naaman, no one is actually named here. Not the Israelite servant girl who recommends Elisha, but that's not surprising because she's a servant. But then again, neither is the king of Aram or the king of Israel. And it's not clear if this story happened during the reign of the house of Omri or Yehu, or if the Aramean king is indeed Ben-Hadad II, in which case the king of Israel is Yehoram, son of Ahav. But if the Aramean king is Chazael, then we're talking about Yehu or maybe his son Yehoahaz. But what we do know is that Israel is kind of the subject to Aram. They suffer raids and Israelites are captured as prisoners by the Arameans, which explains why the king of Israel completely freaks out when he gets the request from the Aramean king to arrange for Naaman to see Elisha. There are a lot of excitable people in this tale. The king of Israel rends his garments, Naaman rages when he's told to dip in the Jordan, but Elisha is confident and cool and things go his way. And they go his way when some damn fool minion sends an expensive axe head flying into the Jordan River. This tale follows the structure of the previous tales almost to the letter. There's the setting of the scene, be it with the impoverished widow, the Shunammite woman in her house, the hungry minions at Gilgal, and now the minions in the bank of the Jordan. Then comes the catastrophe. Be it the bad debt forcing the children into slavery, the dead son, a poisoned stew, or a lost axe head followed by the anguished call for help, and then salvation. And even the subsequent legend, which has a more overtly political tone, follows the same structure. There's exposition, then there's danger, followed by miraculous rescue. And as in the previous legends, there is a clear message. Elisha represents the voice of reason, the voice of compassion and cool-headedness, whereas the king of Aram is rash and excitable, and the king of Israel strives to be cruel and heartless. Both monarchs learn their lessons soon enough, and the matter is resolved peacefully. The last tale, as bloody and lengthy as it is, 
also follows the legendary structure. Exposition, tragedy, and danger, and then miraculous rescue. And like the previous tales, no one besides Elisha is mentioned by name, and he's not mentioned that often in any of the five subplots of this tale. He doesn't really feature in the exposition about the famine brought on by the siege. He's not mentioned at all in the cannibal dispute between the two women that drives the king to plan Elisha's assassination. He is referenced in the D story of the doubting hand of the king and his eventual punishment, but the final E story of the lepers at the Aramean camp, Elisha is not referred to at all. There are many call-outs in these stories to other legendary tales in the Tanakh, the two women arguing before the king about babies is reminiscent of the infamous dispute between the sex workers before Shlomo. But the motif of mothers eating their young during a ruinous siege appears in three other places in the Tanakh. One of the other folk tale aspects of this story is the strong resonances between scenes. These motifs recur. We shift to Elisha's house, where despite the absolute insanity going on inside the walls of Samaria, the prophet is, once again, the picture of confidence and cool-headedness. And when the king's emissary comes ostensibly to kill him, Elisha smushes the man in between the door and the door jam. And then the king is there somehow, and Elisha tells him salvation is near, but the hand of the king is doubtful. And for this, the hand of the king will be smushed at a different door, the gate to the city. Oh, okay, I see what you did there. And then we have this rescue, which really isn't a rescue. I mean, it is a rescue, but it's not really, we don't really see it. I mean, we, we hear about it. The salvation of Samaria is discovered by four lepers who keep the information to themselves at first. And when they finally report what they've seen, they're not believed. In the final two scenes of this tale, we have callbacks to previous scenes in this tale. The penultimate scene takes place in the king's house, which is reminiscent of Elisha's house, where Elisha ordained the salvation of Samaria. Except the king, when confronted by the actual salvation of the city, doesn't believe the report. Only when the report comes back that in fact the lepers were right is the siege officially over. Which brings us to the final scene, which recalls the opening scene. We are in the marketplace. Before, the text tells us, inedibles were selling for exorbitant prices. Now the market is flooded with goods from the looted Aramean camp. And when the gates are opened, the crowd rushes out and smushes the hand of the king to death. Oh, okay, I see what you did there. And to add one final piece to this elaborately constructed series of folktales is the character of Elisha. Where he was a hanger-on to Eliyahu in previous episodes, we, we become familiar with a man who becomes increasingly well-rounded through the many interactions he has. He makes the classic prophetic appeals and predictions, trotting out the usual prophet's locutions like, Thus saith the Lord, and such and such. He makes things happen through prayer and intercession, but he also makes things happen with spells and magic. He also divines information from long distances. And finally, he can really lay on the serious curses and, like in the previous episode, make bad things happen to people that piss him off or doubt him and the word of God he represents. In short, Elisha has deservedly become a legend, one who can make us laugh, make us cry, and make us believe, and he will continue to do so for six decades. Stay tuned, he's nowhere near done. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. 
or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find Tanakhcast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 84, when we continue the second book of Kings with chapters 8 through 11.